Welcome to the Oasis Unstacked, where we cover NFTs, the metaverse, crypto gaming, and everything in between. This podcast is sponsored by CoinFlex, the home of crypto yield. Whether you're passively managing money or taking an actively managed approach, you can earn and trade crypto easily on CoinFlex, which sees over $2 billion in daily trading volume. CoinFlex is committed to making crypto derivatives yield accessible to everyone, whether you are investing hundreds or thousands of dollars and more. With a newly launched automated market-making product called AMM+, you can earn yield on crypto by providing liquidity into the futures markets. The AMM Plus is 10 times more capital efficient than other automated market makers and offers multiple collateral types so that you can earn more with less. Interested in learning more about CoinFlex and trying out the AMM Plus? Head over to coinflex.com AMM to get started and let the market work for you. So hey, Cameron, welcome to Oasis Unstacked. It's great to have you on the show with us. Awesome. Thanks, Leslie. Yeah, you're here with the Oasis crew or one member of the Oasis crew, Tom Yi. And so, yeah, we're excited to learn more about the Kong project today and kind of introduce to our audience a very interesting thesis that you have about the space, which is what if crypto was more like cash, right? I think that was like slide one of your presentation over at ECC. So would love for you to, yeah, just kick it off with this sort of big picture that you have about crypto. Yeah, definitely. Thanks. So crypto is one of those funny things that started playing around with in 2011, 2012 with Bitcoin, then forgot about it for years, and then kind of came back around 2016, like Ethereum was just starting to get going. The DAO hack happened and thought the whole space was really interesting. And my background was in hardware along with my co-founders. We were building IoT door locks. And so one of the things that we realized when we started to come back in the space around 2016, 2017, was there was really a lack of physical experiences for crypto, which, of course, makes sense. It's a purely digital concept. But we thought that that created a lot of like psychological distance between people understanding innately why it had value, understanding how it could be useful in their lives. And so we kind of we went through this deep dive upon selling our last company on what kind of crypto experiences could you build if you made physical versions of crypto? And the first manifestation of that was Kong Cash. And so Kong Cash is a physical cryptocurrency note. And at issuance, it was issued on the notes first, not in a digital form. And the whole idea behind, you know, what is this and why is this comes down to the fact that everybody knows how to use cash. It's a simple instrument that's been with us for thousands of years. People know how to spend it. They know how to save it. They know how to secure it. They know if it gets lost or destroyed, the value is gone. And I think those concepts were really, really tricky for a lot of people to get with, say, private keys with respect to Bitcoin or Ethereum or other cryptocurrencies. And so even though, yes, it's super anachronistic to create this traditional physical instrument with value in it with cryptocurrency, I would contend the flip side that because we are so societally conditioned on how cash works and how to spend it, that it's the perfect instrument to start in terms of educating and onboarding people with crypto. And so we don't have the super strong thesis that into the future, everyone is only going to use crypto cash or that this is indeed the future of crypto, but rather that to onboard the next billion users to crypto, something like physical crypto might be a really useful tool. So what is it exactly about this physical note, right, that makes it a compelling alternative, let's call it, to just on-ramping onto a platform and buying your first stablecoin, right, which then has already a lot of utility embedded in it, either as a yield product or as a funding currency to trade multiple pairs across the crypto ecosystem. Like, should people think about it as an alternative or at this point in time, more as a complement, right? And I'm trying to come at this question from a user that is trying to onboard into crypto has very few options, but understands Kong is an option, right? Onboarding via cash versus making that initial conversion between fiat and stablecoins or fiat direct into crypto. Yeah, 
I think the whole notion of asking the question around onboarding is already one, like the, even the terminology onboarding is something that we're aware of in crypto, but people outside of crypto, they might say, what do you mean onboarding? Like, are you like, am I getting onto a plane? What are you talking about? What is this idea? And so the, 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 the notion that we're coming from as crypto natives of what is this person in their first encounter with crypto and how are they actually coming into it? is right now exchanges and exchanges mm-hmm. where they purchase crypto and they hold it and they treat it like a stock. And they're not really engaging directly with the networks themselves. They're not engaging with public, private key material. And I think that's actually a really troubling precedent because, yes, it's great to have a bull market and people want to acquire crypto for a lot of its properties. But if they're never engaging with the lower levels of the network, then we fall back into sort of traditional centralized banking systems where we're reliant on these third parties like the Coinbase is the world and before that the Mt. Gox is the world to secure our crypto and put trust into them. So when I think about with Kong Cash and where we really approach this problem, it's for the person who hasn't really even thought about themselves using crypto ever. I'm sure they've heard of it. It'd be very hard to be disconnected from ever hearing about Bitcoin. But they themselves, beyond potentially thinking about it as an investment, they themselves have no concept of what they might use it for and why they might use it. And so this person is categorically not participating in the space today. Maybe they're not a Robinhood user. Maybe they don't trade stocks daily. Because I think people proximate to securities trading are already way more savvy and probably plugged into purchasing crypto. But these are people who are going about their daily lives, hearing about these things, not really understanding why they'd be useful for them or their day-to-day. And so the onboarding flow for us, I think, is targeting with a cash instrument a very, very different kind of person than an exchange would. And I don't even think that this person is necessarily trying to get into all the really interesting stuff like DeFi or NFTs. I think It's more along the lines of they happen to exist in a place where they're concerned about how their local currency is inflating and day by day prices are going up and what they have in their wallet stays the same. And they're concerned about all of these broader narratives that are very strong in the Bitcoin community, but are also starting to crop up in, say, Ethereum and other places. I'm kind of curious to now kind of ask you about like, how is it similar to cash and how different is it to cash? And how it works, how the con cash works. Because you're telling me this is some you know physical currency, but it's also digital. <laughs> so I'm trying to like wrap my around like how is it like similar to cash? I mean, I get it, it's like a physical note, but how does that link back to the blockchain? And then like there's a smart contract component to it. So can you kind of break that down for us to understand? Yeah. So it's a really tough task to create a physical cryptocurrency instrument because Traditional cash is protected by governments. So if you counterfeit the US dollar, the Secret Service comes after you. And so governments will go out there and remove bad currency from circulation, or at least try to. In the case of crypto, we'd seen a few previous examples where people came up with versions of paper cryptocurrency. And the simplest version is you print a private key on a piece of paper, and maybe you cover that private key with a sticker or something that you scratch off. And that works decently well in a high-trust environment. So if I'm gifting this to a niece or nephew or my dad, there's a high degree of certainty that that key will still retain its whatever value it is, whether it's an account or UTXO. So the problem really comes down to cash operates in fairly low-trust environments. You take a $100 bill and you can deposit in a bank, you can go spend it with people with a fairly high degree of confidence that they'll accept that $100 bill. And so we did a lot of work thinking about and studying the notion of cash. And and really the term that's useful here is soundness. What is the soundness of the cash and the guarantees that you're capable of spending it? And so I think that the approach that we had to take was saying, okay, cryptocurrencies generally have this really important property of a private and a public key pair. If we can imbue a physical cash note with those properties, then we're off on the right foot. And the next step is, okay, what about us as the printer? Now you have to trust us if we're loading this private public key onto the note. And so based on our experience in kind of the chip world and manufacturing, 
we knew about the specialized class of chips. They're called secure elements. They're cheap. They go into a lot of IoT products. They're really designed for getting IoT products onto the web and negotiating TLS and SSL connections. And what we found was a lot of wallets have these integrated, but they don't use them precisely to the way that the chips were designed to function. They use them to store key material that you can externally pull out. But the other interesting feature these chips have is that they can self-generate their own private public key pair, which is never revealed to the user. And that's a really, really important property because it means we as the printer don't have to put the private key on there. The chip self-generates its private key in such a way that is never extractable by any uh, software functions or hardware functions. And even more importantly, those functions are built into the chip at a hardware level. So a lot of hacks around wallets, indeed IoT devices, is because people can go in and manipulate the firmware, this low-level software. These chips, these functions are at a much lower level, and as a result, they're much, much harder to attack. So we arrive at a point where we can use these chips to create a fairly high degree of certainty that A, the private key has not been compromised, and B, as a result, you can circulate them around and they retain their value. Now, there's a few technical challenges to doing that and why we haven't done it with Bitcoin thus far. One of them is we have to bridge a difference in these cryptographic primitives and we have to have a fair amount of complexity. But the other one is when we thought about cash instruments, we realized one key aspect, and that is they aren't like a gift card. So you have a $100 bill, you can spend it, take it to a bank, but you can't pull $45 off the $100 bill and then $15 and so forth, kind of like an Amazon or Starbucks gift card. And so the other piece of it is we decided to create a time lock at a smart contract level. And basically what that means is the notes themselves cannot be separated from their digital value for some period of time. And in the case of Kong notes, it's three years from the moment of printing. And we chose that just because we wanted them to circulate purely in a physical form at inception. And then the other key characteristic is they have a printed face value. So again, unlike a gift card or some gift cards at least, it clearly outlines, okay, this has five Kong of token, 10 Kong, 100, whatever it is. And so all of these aspects are trying to approach the traditional cash instrument that we're used to. And doing that way in a sound fashion from a digital trust perspective, unlike a simple printed private key. I have so many questions. <laughs> I also have a lot of I'm questions. But... <laughs> okay, so let's go one by one, and Tom, you can jump it at any time. So there are certain features to cash where, of course, it's familiar to us, right? It's what makes a wallet a fat wallet, right? As people say. And there's a certain type of listener, perhaps, a certain audience member who's kind of deep into this conversation now with us. And they're probably thinking, I don't want to be held accountable for knowing where my note is in three years time. Like I can barely keep track of where my, call it WeWork card is, or where my, this credit card is. Why would I want a valuable piece of note, right? That's not the same as just a $1 regular old US dollar, call it. Why would I want to hold myself accountable for this value in a physical format when I can just have an online wallet and no matter where I go, right, no matter where I move to, I have access to that without worrying about where it is. So that's my first question. Yeah. So I will not debate the point that digital currency has extreme advantages over physical currency. And that's really hammered in just reading the Bitcoin paper. So for anyone who's listening, who's whether they have crypto on exchange or their own wallet, they're already much further ahead of kind of the people we're targeting. But I would go back to the flip side, which is speaking to a lot of OG kind of Bitcoiner and Ethereum types, there's story after story after story of either them being the recipient or the gifter of crypto. And they did so with a QR code or a card with a scratch off or some other mechanism, sometimes even a hardware wallet. Inevitably, the recipient did not treat that like it had value. And so, you know, really sad stories I've heard of like a QR code that was printed on receipt paper. And this is from a well known crypto VC. And the QR code faded over time. 
And this is circa 2013, 2014. So would be substantial amount, even if it was a fraction of a Bitcoin and stories like that. So I'm not suggesting to the audience of crypto natives that they go out and swap all of their crypto for physical notes and stash them away. But I would say that what we wanted to target is the psychological gravitas of cash so that when you hand someone this instrument, they are not going to immediately throw it away and they'll instead treat it with the weight at which they'll probably, if they keep cash in a safe, maybe they'll keep cash in a safe. If they keep cash in their wallet, maybe they'll keep cash in their wallet. But they will treat it distinctly than a piece of paper with a QR code. They'll treat it distinctly than a plastic card that looks like a Best Buy gift card or something like that. And so we want to imbue a narrative into the crypto. And that's, I think, one of the first steps for people who are still crypto skeptical or they're kind of outside that to give them something which they can hold, touch, feel, look at, and has an effect, a brand to it that they can start to mentally associate is really important. That said, I do think there are a lot of instances where crypto cash instruments will be incredibly useful. And the scary thing is, this is just kind of the global economic environment we live in. We're seeing a lot of governments with very loose policies around the creation of money. And as a result, I think there's many places in the world where you might in fact want to have a stack of this crypto cash because it'll be easier to spend. Now, I'm not advocating for it to be Kong. To be clear, Kong is like a a technology and a demo, more so along the lines of maybe you want to have a stable coin or a flat coin like a instead of a die, maybe a rye, or maybe you want to have an actual Bitcoin note, because you'll arrive at a point in time where relative to your local circumstances, where in many parts of the world, people still use cash every day, it would require you to have such large amounts of your physical cash instruments to buy basic needs, milk, egg, bread, things like that. So I do think there are applications in markets like that for an actual physical crypto instrument. But say in a place where a lot of people use credit cards every day and fairly modern in transition, I would imagine if you gift a set of physical Bitcoin notes to a family member who's never used Bitcoin before, it might be a really helpful onboarding tool to then get them to the next step themselves. And maybe it's also a useful tool in getting them to onboard in a self-custodial way where they, they hold their own key material with a hardware wallet ultimately, as opposed to immediately just hopping onto a Coinbase or some other centralized service. I don't know where to start my question, but I have a few. I guess the first just basic question, maybe I'm just not understanding it, but where does the value drive from for these Kong Cash? Like what assets are backing these Kong Cash as like, so we can trace it back to, you know, redeem it at one point if they wanted to. Yeah, so Kong Cash notes are backed by The Kong ERC-20 token, which is not listed, has zero value as kind of this demo. But it could equally be any other ERC-20 token or Ethereum directly. So when we launched it, the nice thing about doing our own token is we didn't have to pay some additional value into these notes, which we were essentially handing out for free at DevCon Osaka. We could just get them out there and get the concept out there and, and get people to use them. But yeah, in terms of how they're structured, the original Kong notes escrow the token in a smart contract. So you have a smart contract which contains, let's say instead of Kong, it would contain Ethereum. And that smart contract is essentially acting as a wallet for three years. At the end of those three years, you can use the Kong Cash note to generate a signature and you'll sign something like a recent block hash and you'll use that signature to then say, hey, prove to the contract it's been three years, I can retrieve the Ethereum out to whatever, Rainbow, MetaMask, Coinbase. Got it. And then like, can you use Kong Cash in like real world? Meaning like if you were, can you like bring the <laughs> the Kong Cash in the physical, I guess the cash and can you purchase anything? Like how does the, is there any integration of like in world, like, I don't know, payment systems that could be used as, I'm just, or, or is it purely meant to be like, are you storing like a blocks of gold in your vault? Is that how you should be thinking about these Kong Cash? <laughs> Kong, it's funny. When we first released Kong Cash, there was no chip shortage and we could actually manufacture them for a reasonable price. And we did have discussions around let's go drop Kong Cash notes as they are in some location and at mass scale and see what happens. And there were some interesting experiments where 
you know, a lot of people who grabbed the notes told us stories of how they exchanged them either for other cash notes or goods or services. So one-offs of people spending con cash. And we, in fact, even had a couple of businesses reach out saying, hey, we'd like to accept these, like, we'd like to try it out. But the challenge with a cash-based economy is even at a small scale, you need a lot of notes. So we manufactured 7,000-ish con notes, I think. And that's just way too small scale. Because if you imagine a typical cash economy, at any given time, a person might have on them or in a safe place, certainly 20 notes, maybe upwards of 100 notes. So the scale of production needs to be way higher to actually test this out. But yeah, there have definitely been a few experiments. I think we are kind of interested in the question of, okay, if you're going to go launch a physical cryptocurrency somewhere, how would you do it? How would you get people involved? And again, I think there's so many places in the world where people still use cash every day for so many transactions that it's actually a lot simpler than, than one imagines. Now, to the question around, do you just keep it in a vault or keep it in your wallet? It definitely depends on what you put on it. If it's Bitcoin, you might just want to keep it in a vault. If it's a stable coin, you probably want to spend it. And there's probably like answers in between. But it is really interesting to see how the US dollar is treated one way, but currency from Zimbabwe is treated very differently. In fact, not every single kind of cash instrument is equal. And so I think the same would be true of crypto cash instruments at scale, that people might have a preference for the Bitcoin one over the USDC one. So let's take it back a few years to when you guys just started, right? Like, how are you guys pitching Kong Cash in 2019 when you first set out with this idea from DevCon, right? You had just announced. What was that pitch at the time? So we never actually set out to make cash. We came at this from a very different angle, which was a very deep dive in the previous year in 2018 into secure chips. And the reason we got into this whole secure chip space was because we had a few simple ideas. And one of them was, let's put kind of Bluetooth beacons out into the world that are emitting a cryptocurrency. It's sort of a kind of a 2017 ICO style idea, but we could do a, a physical airdrop. And we went through actually building this product because we had a lot of experience working with Bluetooth. And we came down to the realization, we said, okay, we're putting these beacons out in the world. They may be emitting some currency, dropping this currency out there, UBI style or whatever it is. But then they themselves become incredible targets to say, if you can get one of these nodes and pull the private key out, then you can just claim all the currency yourself. And, and so chip security became incredibly paramount for us. And we, we started to go down this whole rabbit hole of, okay, what do we really know about these chips? We've worked with them for years, but where are they made? Who makes them? Under what circumstances? And we spoke with a lot of folks in academia who worked on chip research and industry. We went to a lot of conferences. And we actually first set out to say, hey, we need to build an open, secure element chip. We actually don't trust anything that's out there in the market, and we should go out there on this endeavor. The challenge with building a chip is it's a, a multi-million dollar process, A, and B, at that point in time, it wasn't even clear that beyond ourselves, there was the ideal customer. Maybe hardware wallet manufacturers, but even then, at that point, Ledger maybe just shipped a million units, some total in its whole lifetime. So it didn't seem like a big enough market to justify this whole endeavor. And so with that sort of at the heart of it, we backed up and we said, okay, we still think that physical crypto is really important, whether making cash tangible or otherwise, and that we should use the existing chips and the ones that are closest to adhering to the specifications that we would want in our own chip to demonstrate this. And so Comcast was actually built as a demo. And we'd been speaking with a few folks in the space, a few people at the Ethereum Foundation about this for a while now. And Comcast was really kind of a, rather than us keep on talking about the problem and just going on and on about it, let's build a product that shows this, that intimately shows the link between a digital value and a physical value. And everybody gets it. And that's where it came from as a really simple way to demonstrate, okay, if you want to make a physical crypto product and you want to understand tying a token to a physical thing, this is our starting point. But yeah, we didn't actually set out to, <laughs> to build cash originally. It just it came to us as mm. this is a really 
important way to demonstrate why how we store private keys and chips is important to think about. So then on that point then, right, let's zoom in on the word Kong. What's the origin <laughs> story there? Because it's not one that you just like wake up one day. It's like, you know what? I'm going to call this physical note Kong. Right, <laughs> right, right. It's funny. A lot of people now think it has to do with aping into things and people are apes and King Kong, but it has absolutely zero to do with that. The inspiration for Kong came from a lot of the, the early cypherpunk novels. So thinking along the lines of Neuromancer and Snow Crash. And specifically in Snow Crash, a lot of people credit Snow Crash for being a very clear presentation of digital money and digital cash in science fiction. But the interesting thing in Snow Crash is that physical cash still exists as well. The US dollar has been completely devalued. It's worthless in the story. And there's two kinds of physical cash that people still want to spend. One of them is the Japanese yen. And the other one is called Mr. Lee's Greater Hong Kong Bucks. And it's because this person, Mr. Lee, in far in the distant future, has basically set up his own pseudo-state in Hong Kong. And, uh, you know, you can visit his embassies all around the world, basically because you pay for access. And he also issues his own physical money. And that felt the most appropriate to think about, okay, if we're creating this crypto cash out of thin air, and distributing out to the world. We're very inspired by that. So the name Kong really relates more to actually Hong Kong and has zero to do with King Kong and other fictions. Well, I mean, this is a a great transition into talking about Kongland, right? Talking about the metaverse. So the origin story behind Kong was from probably the more dystopian days, right? The metaverse was a concept that was born out of dystopia and all the things that you can escape from. And today, it seems like the metaverse is not necessarily about escaping this world, but kind of complementing your experience with things that you can't necessarily build in this world, but you can digitally. So we'd like to start off this part of the conversation getting a sense of your thesis of what a metaverse is and where it's headed. Yeah, gosh. It's interesting that you bring up kind of like the dystopian aesthetic of the metaverse as opposed to a brighter aesthetic. And I think that there's a lot of interesting efforts on the the solar punk side of things to brighten up the narrative there. I think reality is always somewhere in between these things. But we do have a lot of capability to build the metaverse that we want today. So I am a subscriber in the there is one metaverse, not a bunch of different ones, I think there will be silos within that metaverse. And I think that in terms of how we interact with it, yeah, there's a lot of fiction and a lot of reality that's pointing towards like this completely all-encompassing VR world and you just plug in and you plug out. And that's definitely coming to fruition. But I also think that we're very close to a lot of augmented reality experiences and technology Mm -hmm that is going to blend it more seamlessly. And then this is actually kind of goes back to some of like the IoT days where we were one of the first companies working in the space in 2009, 2010. And everyone was predicting that you'd use your smartphone to interact with everything in your house. Everything would have a smartphone app behind it and you'd be controlling all these things. And some of that came true. And then a lot of backlash came in because people said, I want to operate this basic thing, whatever it is, a light bulb, a toaster, a microwave, without my smartphone. I want to be able to press a physical button. I don't need to look at a screen to do these really simple things. And so I think that the metaverse will go through the same sort of narrative direction where people will say, I can't spend 10 hours a day in VR. And I know there are people doing these experiments. (laughs) There are people who are spending that much time in VR. But I think a lot of people will say, you know, I just, I can't do that. Maybe the interfaces aren't good enough yet. But as a result, I think that this is where our thesis kind of comes in, that the metaverse will be realizable in the physical world around us. And I think that we may be a little bit early because augmented reality isn't a thing yet, but that's how we see it, is that you will be moving in and out of VR and the real world, and the metaverse will have an impact outside of just the digital realm. And I think this is already coming true today when... You just look at, I think NFTs are the best demonstration of this, really. And this is the conclusion that we came to where you can have a rare collectible valued at thousands of dollars on eBay and it takes forever for it to sell and people don't necessarily buy it and it's a very slow market. And then you have the NFT side of things where 
people drop a 10K PFP and all of a sudden each one is worth multiple Ethereum. And so I think those collectors now are starting to say like, yes, I want a physical way to flex this, to have it on my wall, to look at it. And they want to pull those NFTs back into the physical world. And so, yes, definitely biased in terms of how I see that coming together. But I'm also to a point earlier about these silos and corporate versions of the metaverse. I'm also incredibly hopeful that there's a lot of people now building the metaverse coming from crypto. And as a result, they come with an understanding that when you have open standards and open interoperability, it increases the value for everyone. And so I'm really hopeful that, yes, Facebook owns VR today, but a lot of us other metaverse builders, so to speak, will help to push the open metaverse ahead and maybe create more value there and yeah, let people engage without the walled garden. So what is Kongland? So tell us more about that. <laughs> so to start with Kongland, let me go back to Kong Cash and how we dropped it. So we launched it at DevCon Osaka, which was the end of 2019, and a lot of interest. Then we went to a couple other crypto conferences. We went to the ECC that spring, and we we're gearing up to show off Kong Cash throughout 2020. And being a physical product, it's a very tangible thing. The whole point of it is to show it off physically. And then obviously COVID shut everything down. But before COVID shut things down, we had enough conversations with folks who said, you know what, this is really cool, but I am making crypto merch or I am an artist and I do physical things, not virtual things. To make us realize that while Kong Cash was interesting, maybe the much bigger opportunity was bringing the same technology of, hey, we can tie this digital good to a physical one outside of the cash instrument. And so we, we started running pilots towards the end of 2020, and then they really started to take off in early 2021 with folks like Metafactory and Materium, and basically integrating the just the NFC element and the secure element part of the Concash note into their products. and then now starting to tie those to on-chain assets. So Kongland is really now saying, okay, we've started to do this with a few projects, but we want to open it up. We want to make this available for anyone to produce physical crypto. And we thought about it as something that we could do as a private business, but the problem therein is that if we issue these physical assets, physical digital assets out in the world as a private company, you have this problem which always crops up, which is five, 10 years, we disappear. You're left with this asset where is someone still supporting it? Can you still scan it? Are there apps available? Becomes a closed protocol. And it was very antithetical to how crypto assets are today. If someone makes an ERC-20 and 10 years later, they're not around or the company's not around, it doesn't really matter. That ERC-20 can continue to exist. And so we wanted to think the same way about physical assets. So Kongland is a DAO which is dedicated to, okay, how do we best select the chips for these physical assets? What security properties are we looking at? How do we facilitate their integration? There's a lot of different ways that you can tie them from an on-chain perspective to the asset. What are the templates for that? How do we strive towards making better chips and, and actually potentially manufacture better chips? And then just the distribution side of this. How are we getting these out in the world? How are we explaining these to everyday people? And so Kongland is, for my ECC talk in Paris, it's launching soon as a DAO. There's some structural pieces and tokenomics and things like that that we're pulling together. But really the goal is to launch other DAOs within Kongland. So Kongland is a, we're calling it a crypto state, is really the, the shell or the embodiment of this belief in physical crypto. But within that, we realized there's so many different applications for potential physical crypto, it didn't make sense to have a single organization trying to build them. So for example, as I mentioned, there's the merch side of things, but Ethereum is coming in from a different angle where they're attaching crypto to existing collectibles. And then we had other people who were saying, oh, I'm a musician and I have this specific focus on music. And all these different parties have different needs. So it just made more sense to say, okay, yeah, you should be able to spin up a DAO relative to your needs, relative to physical crypto. Maybe you need a bunch of chips. Maybe you need very few chips. And so that was the inspiration for Kongland as a crypto state. The moment, though, that we approached things as a crypto state, 
all sorts of other crazy ideas started to come up. And already, yeah, there have been a lot of proposals that are much more towards let's buy land and let's like set up infrastructure, which are pretty cool. So who's your ideal DAO participant? Like a brand champion of Kong, right? They're like, right, Cameron, I want to get involved. It seems like it's not exactly the way I should understand a, a typical DAO to function, right? Because it's kind of in this growth phase. But what does this person look like? Yeah, so it's a super interesting question, which I'll approach from how we kicked out participation in the DAO, which was we decided to name everyone a citizen who wanted to join the DAO. And at ECC, we launched a token, an ERC-20 called Citizen, which you could redeem for Citizen ERC-721, and you get a passport and a cool piece of art as a result of that. And the idea behind that was, rather than typical governance structures or historical ones where the voting is economically weighted, if we're a crypto state, we want our citizens to each have their own individual vote. And so it's, it's a very distinct kind of participation than I'm 0.000 whatever percent of Uniswap. Here, at least especially at inception, where I'm one of several hundred votes, I actually have a pretty strong say. So how we think about participants and who is the ideal person to come in, I think a lot of there's a lot of different skills which have emerged from early citizens, and all of them are incredibly useful in the sense that we have people who are they're savvy about hardware and chips, people who are savvy about on-chain contracts. But really most interesting to me are creators. Like people themselves are maybe kind of technical, maybe not. They're certainly technical enough to have gotten into cryptocurrencies thus far, but maybe they're not writing solidity or maybe they're not writing code. However, they see a use case and a need in their day-to-day of where they can make physical crypto. And I think that's the most interesting person that comes into Kongland because they see applications where... I'm sitting in front of a computer writing code and looking at chips all day. (laughs) They're out there living their day-to-day saying, yeah, I could really use this in my industry or I could really use this in my day-to-day or I see this need because I work with these people and they don't have access to this thing. And so those kinds of citizens, as I mentioned earlier, range from like musicians, artists, people working on the ground with international aid programs, people who are thinking about identity, crypto identity, but in the real world and why that might be useful, especially for like stateless people or people who are in flux. So yeah, those are the kinds of applications that are really exciting and looking for more citizens to help build those because I think a lot of it's on the ground. I think a lot of this is not us building chips and writing code. I think a lot of it is actually getting out there and handing out or selling or distributing physical crypto. So before I pass it back to Tom... How did Tom and I get passports to this (laughs) magical crypto state? Right. So as I mentioned, we sold a limited number of these citizenships. And it was based on the fact that we had 500 sets of chips in stock and we could manufacture 500. We didn't try to limit it. Honestly, I thought we would sell maybe 20 or 30 the first week and we would get a small core group of interested people. And I was kind of naive about that. We priced them between $50 and $200 to create a little bit of FOMO. but that was a pretty naive move and a bunch of people swooped in and bought all the tokens up. And so now it's, I don't know, it's trading at several ETH. So it's kind of expensive. So the one way to acquire citizenship today is via the the Uniswap pool. But really near term, what we're trying to do is a couple of things. One of them is issue more citizenship, which is not the alpha category. And alphas will be the first founding members, but you pay a higher price for that. But a broader kind of citizenship category to let anyone participate. And we have a lot of other interesting mechanisms we're thinking of from a DAO perspective of, if we're a crypto state, is there some form of green card where we can bring people in who can't really afford to buy any sort of token, but they may want to work towards supporting the Kongland. So things like that. There will be multiple ways to participate in Kongland. Okay, so if I'm a citizen, then I get a passport? Is that how it Exactly. Works? Okay. And this is like a physical passport that I would just be issued by you? Right, um, exactly. Or your team? Okay. Exactly. So I don't think you can use it to okay. cross the border yet, but... Okay, interesting. <laughs> it's, interesting. It's, it's actually really interesting <laughs> because, you know, I'm part of a lot of DAOs. I'm part of Flamingo, Fingerprints, you know, like a bunch of other stuff that are out there. 
But I just actually really love your concept of how you're thinking about these each DAO as a state. You know what I mean? Like in the conversation, we don't think about ourselves as us, like the citizens of these groups, right? These states. And I think that that perspective is so fascinating. I'm actually going to like talk about this and then like, because like we always talk about, because a lot of, also one of the issue is that we want to onboard more people into the DAO, but oftentimes like the hurdle of the economic hurdle, how much you to put in to get in as like a quote unquote real member or slash citizen is quite expensive. And people, we talk about like, how do we do this? How do we do this? And maybe like you said, the green card, right? That concept just like, I mean, yes, like that's like the way you should think about it. Like, I think that kind of thinking or the mental framework is so refreshing to me because we have a lot of these discussions and I think that's going to be a really interesting thing that I personally am going to go bring it back to the DAOs that I'm part of. But also I think, you know, like what's so interesting about what you're building is that bridging the, because it's interesting because you kind of went backwards initially with Concash where you wanted to bring something that is physical that was natively digital. But now you're kind of doing both things, right? You They're like traditional collectibles. Maybe they want to be on blockchain. So you're integrating like chips to them so you can be tracked. Or something that is natively digital, but you want something that is physical. So you're kind of connecting those two things. And I also see applications where, you know, some of the artworks in the NFT world, right? Like it's not only digital, but there's a physical component. But there's concerns about like, how do you keep track of these two things together, right? Like, because I think the creator's perspective, a lot of times they want these two things that are meant to be together, right? Like, I think good example is like people's like 2020 collection where he sent out a lot of these infinite objects with open editions, but people could literally sell the physical thing separately from the digital. And then you cannot keep track of where is where, like what's where and who's is whom, you know, all that. So I think this is exactly like what, kind of problems that you guys are tackling. And I think it's a huge TAM, I think, in terms of things that could be solved. So I think it's really interesting. Yeah, I think to your point about that question of these physicals getting issued for NFTs, we do not have a, I don't think anyone actually has a final answer as to how this will play out. And so really, we're trying a lot of different things. So the Concash notes worked by escrowing token. The Kongland passports are actually quite different, where you receive an NFT first, and the NFT is really your representation of citizenship. Just like a traditional physical passport, if you lose your passport, you can go to an embassy and get a new one. The same thing is true of a Kongland passport. We don't want it to solely control the NFT. But what we've actually done is, and this is, I think, a model that a lot of projects using these chips will do going forward, is we've built information about the chip into the NFT. And so we've actually created an extension that includes public key information so you can validate it. But there's also conditions where you'll be able to remove that chip from the NFT and add on a new one in case you get a new passport issued. The really interesting thing we're exploring is, and I think some of this is completely crazy, but we'll have to test it out. You can actually imagine circumstances where the physical object may be able to control the transfer of the NFT at some point in time. So you buy an NFT, whatever it is, a Beeple, you hold it, and you get the physical. But the physical is really where the title or the deed lives. And maybe if you transfer the Beeple out of your wallet, you sell it, you list it, there may be some right that we can build in so that at some point in the future, whoever holds the physical can actually pull the NFT back to some other wallet, which creates all sorts of really bizarre circumstances. But on the flip side, if you want to imbue the physical with the sum total value of the NFT, it makes total sense. And so I don't think there's a one-size-fits model to all of these things. I think we're going to have to try them out. But I do imagine there will be physicals where, yes, you want to hold the NFT in your wallet and you want to flex it on OpenSea or Rainbow or whatever, but maybe there are conditions where the physical can facilitate the transfer of it. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what people like and don't like about that. I think that also begs an interesting question of like, is the ultimate value digital or physical, right? Because what you're describing is one condition, either physical or digital changing, dictates the ownership of the other. And 
Uh, that's an interesting you know, open-ended question and also explored by Damien Hirst, right? The currency. Right. We have a really yeah. fun experiment that we want an interesting artist to do with us. And we've thought about this for a while, which is we create an NFT with standard kind of non-animated art. And you can order a print with one of the chips on it. And we will ship you the print with a chip on it. And then at that point, you have the physical. If you want, maybe you can send the physical with the chip back to us and we turn it back into the digital format, which now you can go sell on OpenSea and has the complete fluidity of a traditional NFT. In a sense that you could move in in and out of physical and digital. And in this case, it becomes a little ambiguous because when it's in its physical form, you don't want to lose the physical one because that's how you get the digital one back. But conversely, you can still always go back to digital and transform in both directions. So yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting tests to be run here. And I don't think there's a perfect answer as to, oh yeah, the two or an X are really linked forever. I think there's going to be a lot of a lot of interesting things that citizens do to, to experiment around it. I love where this conversation is heading. We can have a whole nother <laughs> hour with you to explore all of these experimental ideas, right? That you're kind of building on top of this crypto state idea. And I'm just going to do it now. I don't know if anyone has, but coin the term Dow immigrant, like empowering Dow immigrants globally, right? I'm an immigrant in Hong Kong, and I know exactly what it feels like to not be a citizen and not, you know, have the same rights right? And access to certain things that citizens do. Likewise, I'm a U.S. citizen. People who immigrate to the U.S. also experience this kind of on a different level, really, because the system is very complicated there. But, you know, there are struggles, right? When you're not a citizen, you go through things that a citizen doesn't ever have to think about. And so it's kind of taking that kind of situational reality into the DAO space, like you and Tom were talking about, and kind of exploring what that looks like in the digital space, you know, and this kind of goes to issues of social inequality as well, digital social inequality, right? If you don't have the means to be able to participate in certain DAOs that are sometimes quite exclusive and for good reason, right? But, you know, if you're not one of the kind of OGs coming into DAOs, but you really do want to participate because you have something to say, or you have a skill that you can contribute, then are you still able to do that from a different position? Maybe you're not paying the full membership, but you still have rights to be in the DAO, right? And so there are all these different roles that I think over time with more tooling, all the stuff that you can build can be advanced as well as infrastructure gets built out. So I don't know if we talked about like what the passport allows you to do at this point in time, did we? No, no, we didn't. <laughs> so the uh, idea behind the passport is the community will come together in transient ways over time. And when it does, if we have enough citizens in one physical space, then we can grant them access or something relative to the physical passport. And so the simplest version of this is at the next big crypto conference, we'll have a citizen-gated event where your passport will enable you access to it. Or maybe it doesn't enable you access, maybe it enables you some other benefit. You know, we can do a lot of benefits that are entirely on-chain. So you scan your passport and you get a POAP for having arrived and participated and shown that you had your passport. But I think it's also back to our belief in, already I've heard all these stories of citizens showing off their passports to people in the real world. And it's just another tool to engage with people that's not this purely digital form to say, hey, I'm part of this crypto state. And already that statement is completely out of sci-fi, but you can at least point to this physical token that you have as a starting point, as an opener to the conversation of what does that mean? What is a crypto state? Super fascinating. It's so interesting. I know, right? It's like, <laughs> we're going to see like doubt-to-doubt immigration process <laughs> and how we also talk about like these reputation things, right? Like ways to for people to on-chain track your reputation. And I mean, the digital, I mean, the, the access disparity is going to be like huge quite soon as all these things roll out. And right, like if some celeb, like crypto Twitter celeb has this reputation and they just automatically be accepted by the new, whatever the DAO that is processing the new immigrants <laughs> to the crypto state and someone who is new to it, but don't have any background to prove themselves. 
with uh, any reputation or whatever. So they have to start from zero. It's a much more difficult process for them. So it's going to be quite interesting how this unfolds. But Yeah, and that's one of our beliefs around the citizen token is expensive today, but we actually really want to separate the participation as a voter and a citizen of Kongland from the economic portion. And the tokenomics are very close. I wish I could get into detail on what that looks like, but it's trying to structure things much more like traditional participation in a state as opposed to economic weighting, which is typical in DAOs today. And it's not to knock economic weighting. It makes a lot of sense that it's a very directly capitalist way of yes, I own this much control in this thing. But the whole notion around the crypto state is we, first and foremost, with Concash, it was, it's all about let's make crypto more accessible. And so if at the end of the day, all we've created is a super exclusive club, then we've certainly failed at that mission. So ways in which to expand participation that are not reliant on you having ten or $15,000 that you can drop on a mm. passport is really important to think about. Mm-hmm. Love it. Damn. Love it. That was awesome. Cameron, this has been such a fascinating conversation. Yeah. Tom, do you have any last words here to wrap the conversation? I have more questions than last words. <laughs> but yeah, no, this is like really fascinating. I mean, like now I'm one, what I'm wondering, like, to be honest, is like, because a lot of the DAOs are voting based on the economic you know, rights that they have purchased, right? And then now I'm thinking like, in order to create what you're trying to create, try to undo that process, it's going to be very not exciting. You know what I mean? Like people who have the extra votes, they're going to say like, why am I giving these up, right? Like, I'm not going to do that. So you kind of have to start from the process of how you're really building it by separating out the economic side of the things versus the participation in the voting so that you kind of create that environment at, from the inception that this kind of, DAO states can prosper in the longer period of time. Super exciting. Definitely. It's a big challenge, but it's a really fun challenge nonetheless. And just seeing the incredible folks who've already come in to Kongland. And the neat thing is a lot of people see the price today and they're like, wow, everybody paid that price. No, there's a lot of people who came in who saw the talk at ECC and we were trying to set the price relative to how much you pay to renew your passport from the government. So like a lot of people did show up and pay $100. And we got some really cool people as a result. And the conversations are really, really interesting. And so yeah, I hope to come back in 6, 12, 18 months and like see like, okay, what are the challenges of crypto state? We've just set a flag in the ground. Can we successfully deploy projects? Can we successfully deal with these governance questions because all of a sudden you have 500 different people with equally weighted opinions as opposed to one big investor who owns the whole thing. I don't know the answer, but I think it's a a really important experiment to run and really important to try. Well, we're going to take you up on that offer in six months, Cameron, back on Oasis. (laughs) Awesome. Perfect. That sounds great. Going through the new tokenomics and how things have gone because this is just the start, right? As you said in one of your presentations, Kong Land or was it even Kong Cash is the tip of the iceberg for your vision, what you want to be building out. And it's so true for all of the projects and individuals we speak to on Oasis Unstacked. It's we're just catching them at the beginning of the journey, right? And that's the beauty of being so early in the space, even if Sometimes with all the FOMO, we feel like we've missed an opportunity. We might feel like, oh, wow, we've missed the window of opportunity to become a citizen at $100 or something. But there's always going to be things that you iterate on the idea. And we can be new participant for that new product that gets built out on the sort of Kongland platform, right? So Cameron, thanks so much for your time today. I know our listeners will really enjoy it. So appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much, Leslie and Tom. Great to chat.